0: Good afternoon. Welcome to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. And this is our April 10th, 2021 show. You have been listening to Leonard Cohen and his song, Democracy. And you are listening to KFGM 105.5 FM, Low Power, uh, Missoula Community Radio, streaming on 105.5kfgm.org. And now on podcast on anchor.fm or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People, Radio By and For the 99%. What a coincidence. Um, (laughs) So uh, welcome to the show, uh, Sue Kirchmeyer. Welcome, Sue. How are you? Hi,
1: Mark. Mark. I'm good. Yeah,
0: good, good. Well, and later in the show, we will play a recording of a panel presentation from April 7th on the PRO Act, which happens to be our word of the week. Another coincidence, Um, and we look forward to that. We
1: broadcast from the historical Union Hall in the Missoula Valley of Montana, which is the ancestral homeland of the Salish people. We're also recording the show from the comfort of our homes, which are also located in the ancestral home of the Salish.
0: And we hope you are holding up and doing your part by staying at home as best you can. And by wearing masks when you do go out into public and by frequent washing of your hands. This show is pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. We hope you enjoy the show as we enjoyed learning how to put this together without going into the studio in the historic Union Hall. And <laughs> We have a list today and we want to give old Mick as usual a shout out as he is at home too. And we hope friend of the show Catherine Kanayau gets better as well, and our sound sound guy Jim Galan, uh, who is feeling the effects of his second COVID shot, uh, we hope you feel much better soon, Jim. Great,
1: great. So, um, as Mark said, the word of the week is Pro Act, um, which stands for Protect the Right to Organize Act.
0: Yeah, Sue and. Uh, the, we need to repeat this carefully, repeat this word of the week carefully. So there is no confusion. It's pro act. We do not want to create confusion with this, uh, in say Prozac, uh, as a lot of people have been saying, um, and create confusion between this labor legislation and the popular antidepressant. Although the pro act could do a lot to cure both mental and economic depression. Too true. so um the act is also known in the u.s congress as house resolution 842 which is a lot less sexier than the pro act but it has passed the u.s house of representatives uh, this past january with five republicans voting for it and it's this bill is currently in the senate now but that's it's going to change and be attached to the uh, President Biden's infrastructure bill, uh, which probably is not gonna be dove into until much later this spring and summer.
1: Mm -hmm. And if it passes then, what will it do?
0: Well, at the heart of it, the PRO Act will undo most of the hobbles placed on workers in the U.S. to organize into a union. It will also allow workers to build their power in unions That they once had in this country in the 1930s and 40s.
1: Okay. And what are the mechanisms? How's it going to do it?
0: Well, it's got a lot of moving parts, um, but generally it will eliminate most of the provisions of the Taft-Hartley Act passed in 1947, which was intended and had the exactly profound effect of destroying the culture of organizing in unions and the undermining of worker organizations. Right after World War II, worker power was increasing by leaps and bounds and the Republican and Democratic conservatives elected to Congress uh, acted on behalf of the wealthy to limit union power. And that Taft-Hartley Act was very effective at doing that. Uh, So much so that 74 years later, unions are hanging on by their fingernails in this country unlike most other countries in the world.
1: Mm-hmm. And one of those hobbles is the right to work laws, um, which allows workers covered by a union contract to be completely, a completely free rider.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh,
1: in other words, they can enjoy all the benefits of the union contract, higher wages, better benefits benefits and protections from arbitrary firing, but they don't have to pay one penny for it.
0: That's exactly right, Sue. Yep.
1: Yeah, kind of drag it down.
0: Yeah. And, and lots of people don't under, even understand what right to work means. They just think it's you can't have a union. <laughs> um, but that's not true. Uh, the PRO Act would eliminate uh, all such right to work laws passed. In Montana here, uh, just uh, a few weeks ago, uh, it was defeated in the legislature thank goodness, uh, but uh, if the PRO Act, it would get rid of all of them all across the country. And, it, and the PRO Act would do much more, um, but we can save some of the explanation of the PRO Act for the forum recording, which we will play later in its entirety, uh, later in this show.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll be great.
0: Yeah.
1: So I guess there's lots of news then you wanna cover. Um, what's first uh, in the current news, Mark?
0: Well, despite the rollout of the vaccines against COVID-19, the pandemic is still with us in the U.S. and still going relatively strong. The overall number of new daily COVID-19 cases is now steady at a rate of about 66,000 cases a day. Uh, Worldwide, most countries' rates of new cases are also going up, some dramatically, led by the European Union, Brazil and India with the U.S. right in that mix. And the reason why it's going up uh, is because of these uh, uh, mutations of the original coronavirus, uh, and uh, which seems to be a lot more um, contagious and it remains to be seen if they're more deadly, but uh, it's not a good thing. And these, these these variants are around in every state in this country now. So.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it gets to be kind of a feedback because the longer COVID's around, the more chance it has to have variants and then the harder it is to nail them down. So,
3: yep. And, in <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. and, and, and just to sum up, I mean, we don't not covering this directly this week and maybe next week we will, but the, um, the vaccines, um, which are really slow going in, 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 in this country and in the rest of the world, uh, may, or, I mean, there's some worry that the vaccines may not cover exactly all of these variants. And so, uh, we may be, you know, seeing a much, I mean, it's potential for us to be seeing a much longer, uh, pandemic at this point, if these variants, uh, do, you know, do the worst that may be expected and that the vaccines aren't going to be entirely uh, uh, helpful, which means that masking up, keeping your distance, washing your hands is still the most effective weapons we've got against these viruses. Yeah.
1: Um, And helping to take care of the rest of the world too, because, yeah. Yes, yes.
0: We're, we're all in this together, exactly. Um, so um, according to a broadcast by Democracy Now! on April 1st, Brazil's hospitals are dangerously close to failing because of the wave of COVID victims. For those of you who believe that we need to risk COVID infection to save the economy, the economy will not recover until people feel safe enough from the coronavirus and have enough money to spend into the economy. The World Health Organization, or WHO, advised governments that before reopening, rates of positivity in testing should remain at 5% or lower for at least 14 days, which means that out of all the tests conducted, how many came back positive for COVID-19 should be 5% or less for two weeks. Montana, the past two weeks, has met the goal with a steady positivity rate of 4%. And we remain the only state in our area, in our region of the country, that uh, is meeting this goal. Some of the highest positivity rates in the nation are in Idaho, steady at 27% positivity, where they had to close down the state legislature because too many non-mask-wearing Republicans have come down with COVID. South Dakota is steady at 11% positivity testing rate. Wyoming is steady at 5%, but has lost the WHO standard for partially reopening the economy. North Dakota, which had also exceeded WHO standards, has now fallen below them with a rising positivity rate of 10%. Montana, uh, yeah, of 10%.
1: So only now, according to the WHO, WHO, Mm -hmm. Um, Can Montana begin to slowly reopen the economy, but things are way more open than that, aren't they? Yeah. With the new threat of the new COVID-19 variants coming into Montana, um, Governor Gianforte um, is refusing to impose mask mandates.
0: Yep. And he he, he, he came down with COVID himself.
1: He and his wife both.
0: Yeah. Yeah. After 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 lecturing people Mm -hmm. saying, well, you know, the government shouldn't mandate mask wearing, which I think is ridiculous, Mm -hmm. as as if that's some big civil rights violation. But Mm -hmm. um, but he said, well, people should be responsible enough to, you know, wear their mask. And well, and then he comes and he and his wife come down with it and may have infected others. Yeah. uh, And they're still doing tests to find that out. Uh, it's not a good look for the governor,
1: yeah, yeah, and I don't really have a lot of faith having broken not paid attention to other laws recently. Um,
0: yes, so <laughs> yes, you know, yeah, yeah, he trapped a wolf and he broke the law doing that, so um, yeah, it, it's uh, yeah, Governor Gianforte's got his own law, maybe, um. Yeah. But new. but you know, it 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 may be tempting to to think otherwise, but we are still a ways from beating COVID-19 people. And we reopen way too soon as we still don't have enough money in working people's hands, compounding the problems and trying to control the pandemic. Congress's ineffective action uh, has put states in a very tough position, either close down the economy, control the COVID but severely reducing people's income or leaving the economy partially open to allow people more economic security, but to allow the pandemic to infect and kill more people than otherwise would be the case.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So not a big choice there.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a yeah devil in the deep blue sea. Um, these, you know, these COVID-19 figures are according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website and the state of Montana. We are certainly nowhere done with this virus yet, as it is still at large and spreading. At 561,000 deaths, the U.S. is still the world leader in COVID-19 deaths. As the COVID-19 pandemic took hold, life expectancy in the United States dropped one full year during the first half of 2020, according to a February 18th Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report, with even greater declines seen among Black and Hispanic people. The U.S. accounted for 19% of all the deaths in the world and for 23% of the confirmed cases, which is slightly going down, um, All though was still only 4% of the world's population.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah, I think... You know that message of what we could have done and what we did is really something we have to live with, and it actually reminds us that we really have a lot to do still.
0: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. We're we 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 can't let this repeat, mm-hmm. and that that is going to require some very fundamental changes. Uh, mm-hmm. If people think we're going to if this isn't going to repeat and we're just going to skate by and not make basic changes. I, I think that even, well, we're going to get to this in a second, but uh, how slow the vaccinations are going is, uh, you know, at, at this rate, it's going to be next Christmas by the time everyone's vaccinated.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so so the the system is broken, and we're using this broken system to try to deal with it. And mm-hmm. it's not working so well.
1: Yeah. And like I said, I always like to put in a plug for how the wealthy during these kinds of crises, that the wealthy get wealthier and that it takes down the it transfers wealth. Almost every crisis like this is a, is a wealth
0: transferring operation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I couldn't have said it better. And That's... puts
1: it at the top. I mean, if you look at your housing, if you look at the, how small business has been harmed and how so much of the first... Um, the CARE Act and so forth was helping big business at the expense of little businesses. They're not even tracking small businesses that are going down. You can't keep track of it. And they're not even trying um, um, that, you know, we really, with, I know we've gotten an influx of money to the state, but that, that process going on in the legislature really needs to be front and center and so transparent. And so yeah. sure it's reaching who it needs to reach. But anyhow, you wanted to talk about vaccinations too.
0: Yeah, well, and, and, oh, and before we do that, though, I think it's really important to talk about solidarity mm-hmm. as, as a society, OK, because um, it's basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks, to distance themselves from others, to frequently wash their hands and to go get vaccinated um, if we're going to beat the pandemic. It's, it, this is basic. It's been basic for over a year. Um, solidarity, of course, requires some sacrifice, but it is essential for mm-hmm. every person that does not do these precautions. We are that much farther from controlling the virus, achieving herd immunity through vaccination and fully reopening the economy.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I had another thing to say. Do you mind? Yeah. you No. Yeah, I was talking <laughs> with somebody who works um, like at partnership mm-hmm. and um, she was kind of reminding me that. Um, I mean, I've seen that a lot of people have gotten onto, speaking of solidarity, have gotten onto the Affordable Care Act, um, you know, Medicaid expansion, um, mm-hmm. because um, Biden was able to open up the the, the um, enrollment period, which, you know, there's so crazy that it wasn't done until then. It was just crazy. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of people, I can't remember how many million have actually gotten onto it now, but that she thinks that there's a, not enough going on that everybody should be reminding everybody. It should be on every talk show, you know, from whatever political perspective to let people know that you can get on it now.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. That's yep. To, to sign. I mean, it's better than, it's better than nothing. Sometimes mm-hmm. the deductibles are insanely high But at least you got something, at least it's, it's not going to, uh, you know, it's, it's catastrophic coverage for a lot of people. And, but that's better, better than nothing.
1: Well, truly in this time of who knows what your next catastrophe is going to be, but she said that a lot of people are coming in for health care, maybe because they are getting on, even if they don't have COVID, they're coming in for help. That's Um,
0: good. Yeah.
1: Cancer screening, that kind of thing. And it's just anything you can do now while you've got a chance.
0: Yep, no, and, and,
5: um, and
0: mm-hmm. in partnership. Partnership is, and I'm just explaining this for people oh, yeah, that don't right. know. In in Missoula, it's the uh, community health clinic, um, mm-hmm. and, and that's uh, uh, it's a public clinic. It's mainly, I mean, sliding it, scale. It, yes, sliding scale, right? And and it's funded by the federal government. So mm-hmm. yeah, they accept
1: um, insurances. a the Affordable Care Act or Aaron yes,
0: too, but right. It,
1: sliding scale according to income, so.
0: Yep, exactly.
1: A really nice, good place.
0: Um, So uh, yeah, I just wanna touch upon vaccination. So vaccination is is slow going. Montana has only fully immunized 23% of our population as of Friday, and that's only an increase of three percentage points since last week. So it seems to be catching about 3% of our population every week. So you do the math, I haven't done the math, but from 23%, you know, so there's still like 70, you know, 7% of the people in Montana have not been immunized. And 3%, you know, a week uh, with at that rate is mighty slow going. But Even saying that in Montana is slightly above average for the country, which is about 20% fully vaccinated. So, and and in Montana, everyone can now make an appointment to get vaccinated, and you should.
1: Mm Okay. So, and the last story before the panel for the PRO Act, the PRO Act.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, most everyone has heard of the Amazon warehouse workers trying to organize into a union in Bessemer, Alabama. As Mike Elk so ably reports in his publication Payday Report on April 9th, uh, quote, today, the union drive at Amazon in Alabama, which drew unprecedented political and media attention, was defeated by a two-to-one margin. Last month, as we stood in the parking lot of Amazon's warehouse and spoke with 32-year-old Ashley Beringer about her take on the Amazon union vote, it became apparent to us why the union was headed for defeat. Uh, so Ashley Beringer said, I guess I'm more, more so against the union because I don't know much about unions. I've never had to deal with unions until now, she said. In our interviews with workers, we discovered most workers held similar views to Beringer. It wasn't that they hated unions who were heavily or heavily against them, but that they didn't know much about unions and didn't feel they could trust them. There wasn't, you know, a, a relationship established. In winning union elections, the election feels like more of a formality <clears throat> since the organizing committee has already been acting as a union winning campaigns in the workplace to change things and standing up for coworkers facing unfair disciplining. Hmm. Right. So in other words, what, what Elka is saying is that uh, once, once the union goes above ground in organizing it, it, it basically starts acting like a union and advocating for workers and organizing workers uh-huh. to stand up for themselves and, to, so and defend pretend- others.
1: It has protections yeah. they're organizing. So what happens now? Will they lose their protection?
0: Yeah. Well, no, it's, it's, yeah, it's done. They don't, uh, the committee, the committee wasn't acting like that in the workplace.
6: Mm-hmm. And so
0: workers didn't know, I mean, that's how you familiar, familiarize yourself with unions. You see, you, mm-hmm. you actually participate and see it in action. Otherwise mm-hmm. it's a, it's a pretty vague, you know, kind of abstract thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, Winning campaigns in the workplace to change things and stand up for co-workers facing unfair disciplining is Mm -hmm. what Elk says that the union organizing committee should have been doing. Then when the union election comes, workers feel like they already know the union and are a part of the union. In massive facilities with thousands of workers like Amazon, the process of building a strong organizing committee and building trust in the organizing committee through concerted action can sometimes take years. Hmm. Uh, The retail warehouse department uh, store union had only started its campaign last June when outrage over unsafe working conditions during COVID was raw. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: While they had an outpouring of initial momentum and interest, they never developed a strong organizing committee that took the time to build trust through shop floor action and organizing against the boss. Instead they rushed a union election or did what is known in union organizing as hot shopping where union organizers hope to take advantage of an outburst of anger in a facility over things such as poor COVID working conditions to force and win a, a quick union election. I however, see. yeah. However there are, and sometimes that works, right? I've been involved in a hot shop and we got it organized in like three weeks, which is unprecedented. Um, anyway, that was in uh, the Boise airport. Um, mm-hmm. However, their initial union enthusiasm at the Amazon uh, warehouse, support, uh, the support collapsed under the weight of a sophisticated anti-union campaign by Amazon that combined, that combined threats of job loss with promises of improvement if workers reject the union. And mm-hmm. by the way, that's something the PRO Act would make illegal and not only make it illegal, it would also, if for any violations that an employer would do, such as what Amazon did, they would be faced with stiff fines. Um, that's mm-hmm. another part of the PRO Act. Many workers uh, in interviews that voted against the union admitted that they knew little about Amazon. This allowed the company, through anti-union meetings, to create, or they knew little about the union. Um, this allowed the company through anti union meetings to create fear over the change that unions could bring, warning workers that their wages may actually decrease under a contract or worse, that their facility may close. Not wanting to risk a relatively good job with the average wage of $16 an hour, many workers chose the safety of the status quo, then risk joining a union they didn't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, one uh, uh, this woman Beringer said, I don't want someone coming in and changing everything, especially if certain things are, you know, are good in the situation. And mm-hmm. if the union comes in, I don't know how it's going to be. Mm-hmm. So again, again, her statement really underlines the fact that pe- people don't really understand unions, right? And how they work. The weaknesses of the organizing committee's mm-hmm. approach were on full display on the last Friday of the campaign when a un- union rally headlined by Senator Bernie Sanders and rapper Killer Mike drew barely a dozen Amazon workers. Oh as, a, as a veteran, I know, that's, just, that's a huge sign. As a veteran labor reporter, I felt a distinct vibe that folks were too scared to show up to a rally like that. As is often the case following union defeat, many workers will likely face retaliation and many Amazon workers were likely too scared to show up.
1: So here's a question. Was mm-hmm. it you or, or someone else? I can't remember who it was who was saying that for Amazon, the average uh, amount of time that a person works there is like a year. I wonder yeah. if that would be true in Alabama. or was it, was I, it I,
0: I, I bet, I bet it would be. And that's also another barrier to union organizing. If you're trying to develop relationships with people to get, Mm-hmm. Get to know them, to have the organizing committee acting like a union, even though you're not a union, but acting like a union so that people can get to understand if you have turnover of 50, 100 mm-hmm. percent, it's like pushing the boulder up the hill and then watching it roll down again, mm-hmm. at time and time and time again. And, yeah. and this is one, one of and the he, difficulties. Yeah. yeah.
1: And you don't have any. Exam- I mean, Alabama, I don't know. Do they have? How many unions do you suppose they have in Alabama? I'm assuming it's a right-to-work state.
0: It, it um, is right-to-work.
1: Kind of like some drivers who are organized, so they've got that example, or even somebody down the street who's organized, you know, some plumbers or somebody.
0: But, yeah, but the, but the rate of unionization is really low in Alabama. It's much higher. It's probably twice or three times as high in Montana, and easy, um, mm-hmm. as Alabama. And so, uh, you know, there are unions there. And, mm-hmm. um, but uh, again, they're not, they don't cover as many people. And so the experience, there's just that many fewer people that have any experience with unions, uh, at all. So, um, now, uh, Mike Elk goes on, uh, and, and, and this is really more of, of the, the bigger picture, right. And how, how to make, how to, how to make positive sense out of this whole, uh, oh, defeat good, good. of the union at, at Bessemer. So Elk says, while it would be too easy to label what happened at Amazon as a, quote, defeat, in many ways, it inspired a national movement. Within 24 hours of the defeat of the union at Amazon appearing likely, Mm -hmm. non-union workers at Amazon went on a wildcat strike in Chicago, Mm -hmm. which is a very strong union town and people know are more familiar with unions in Chicago. Right. So uh, Raquel Johnson, a sorter at uh, the Amazon warehouse, told the Chicago Sun-Times, quote, I'm done with just accepting what the company does. I know my heart is telling me to take action. I'm willing to lead and be that example, end quote. Organizers say this type of non-union wildcat strike in Chicago is exactly what's needed to build support and trust in a union before an election. Activists were enthusiastic, though, that the Amazon campaign, which got unprecedented national as well as international media coverage, could create an appetite for more organizing on behalf of Amazon workers, taking actions across the country. Mm. Solidar- solidarity actions with Amazon workers were held in over 50 cities across the U.S., mm. with many groups plotting on how they could begin targeting the e-commerce beh- behemoth in their own backyards. Mm-hmm. Groups like Southern Worker Assembly, which helped organize the Solidarity Action, saw their membership swell as a result of interest in supporting Amazon workers in Alabama. Saladin Mohammed, a retired veteran uh, United Electrical Workers organizer and one of the founders of the Southern Worker Assembly said, whether the Amazon workers were conscious of it or not, it really drew attention to the need to organize and the possibilities of really organizing in itself. It drew attention to the fact that forces all over the country are eager to see the South being organized and are ready to engage in solidarity actions, end quote. Muhammad said that one of the flaws of the RWDSU's approach was that they did not try to build a national movement and work with other unions to try to target multiple Amazon facilities across the country at the same time. Quote, workers got to feel that they are part of the movement, not just part of a particular campaign that are sometimes defined by when you file for a union election and petition for a vote, then you vote, he said. Sometimes people measure a struggle, a union campaign is the beginning and the end of a struggle. When this is a much larger battle of workers for power going on out in the world, end quote. While Muhammad is disappointed in the results, as Elk reports, He believes that solidarity actions and support for Amazon workers could lay the infrastructure for the type of truly national movement that he was looking for. He says now is the time to dig and to continue to build on the network of support built for Amazon workers during the union election. Muhammad emphasized, it's an unfortunate union vote, but the defeat you understand would be if the factors that the fight developed, the solidarity network, the political positions of some of the elected officials, the engagement of community organizations, atrophied. The defeat would be if all that goes by the wayside. End quote. Mm-hmm. Great. So you know, it, even even in defeat, it's it can help build uh, a foundation for future victories, and that's mm-hmm. and that and that's how these movements get built. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And I think it, when I thought of what was going on down there, somehow I thought it involved more than only Alabama, even though everybody said Alabama, 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 somehow I was thinking it was like Amazon. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
0: well, it's it's right. And I think, I think it could have, you know um, I, I, I think Elk's first point though, in having the committee in, you know, mm-hmm. engaging and working as a union. So people get practice and, actually begin to understand through experience mm-hmm. what a union is about, um, that's that's really important. And then, you know, I think Muhammad's point too of building, because Amazon is a behemoth, there's no question about it. And mm-hmm. to have a multi-site uh, organizing drive, you know, that's probably the next thing that's going to come, right, is uh, places like Chicago. I know in Minneapolis, the Amazon workers have been, you know, there's a big Amazon warehouse in, in eastern Washington. Um, all you know, they're, they're all over the place. And um, it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, how people are going to pick up, mm-hmm. you know, from the ashes of this uh, particular defeat and, and manage to build that into a more powerful and, mm-hmm. and larger uh, uh, yeah. movement.
1: Yeah. So. And I think, yeah, something I, I think too, is that during the time that they're organized and, and like you say, they're not, they can do things like be on really good behavior um, during this time and tell them all kinds of stuff that right. considered legal, but they could get away with it. Right. Um, um, that, that, that you think that, well, it's like a honeymoon, you know, and then, and then once that's done and, and you get, and they, kind of lose interest in you again yes start to deteriorate again i mean it's like the honeymoon's over and right. um you weren't going to date someone else and so you know once they know well the union's out we can do what we want again um because they, they can't be on good behavior all over the country and they certainly um you know right not right it once- was
0: so. What, and that happens so I've seen that so many times, exactly what mm-hmm. you say. That mm-hmm. when it looks like there's going to be a union, oh, they're all mm-hmm. peaches and cream and they're yeah, your right. best buddy, and we're just a family. Yeah, and right. then, um, and, and 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 they stop their abuse, their abuse. Mm-hmm. And then, once, like you said, once uh, you know, once uh, you know, you're not going to date or leave the family or date someone else, then the abuse starts in again. Mm-hmm. And I, I've seen this so many times. It's yeah, uh, abuse
1: cycles are bad anywhere, um, but yeah. you, know, you maybe aren't going to buy it the second time around. As right. far as if you do try again, and they get nice again, it's like, well, sorry. Yeah.
7: So, yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, anyhow, yeah. So thanks a
0: lot. Yeah. Well, thanks for being on Sue, and mm-hmm. I'm going to introduce the next part of this. Yeah, um, So, uh, um, and this, uh, next we will listen to in its entirety, a forum on the PRO Act from April 7th. This forum was organized by the two Sunrise Movement hubs in Montana, and three of the Democratic Socialists of America chapters in Montana. The forum features Ty Wheeler, a Yellowstone National Park snow coach guide, or former guide, uh, who was fired last year for trying to organize workers there into a union. Miles McCarvel, an organizer with the Iron Workers Union Local 14, and the current president of the Montana Building and Construction Trades Council. And then lastly, Tammy Kim, freelance writer and union organizer. And they will tell stories uh, that will highlight the absolute need for the PRO Act. And the PRO Act was all, you know, would have helped organizing in alabama as well so yeah
1: yeah and i can i do a sneak preview and just say that i i heard the the um forum and it'll set your hair on fire as far as just knowing what's going on in our own our own yellowstone it just will break your heart yeah yeah yeah
0: absolutely well thank you sue again and yep
1: glad to be here Bye bye
5: To America first The cradle of the best and of the worst It's here they got the range And the machinery for change And it's here they got the spiritual thirst It's here the family's broken And it's here the lonely say That the heart has got to open In a fundamental way Democracy is coming I tell you
8: Millions of young people are looking for good work. And there is so much good work that needs to be done. It will take millions of people to build a new energy grid, care for older folks, teach little kids, restore parks and buildings that have fallen into disrepair, and do the work of building happy and healthy communities. This year, we can create millions of good-paying jobs while building a sustainable, just, and people-centered economy. The original New Deal was won through militant labor organizing. The PRO Act will help build labor power as strong as it needs to be in the months and years ahead to win a just transition to a green economy for all communities. And with that, I will pass it to Bonnie and Mark to tell us more about the PRO Act.
9: My name is Bonnie Lambert. I'm co-chair of Helena DSA. For DSA, and I'm Mark, sorry.
0: sorry. No, I'm just gonna say I'm Mark Anderlich, uh, co-chair Western Montana DSA.
9: For DSA, a first step in ensuring that Biden keeps his campaign promises to support labor and offer real proposals for robust action to counter our climate emergency is a call all hands on deck is an all-hands-on-deck call to organize support for the PRO Act, the Protect the Right to Organize bill that is now in the Senate, having been passed by the House last year. The PRO Act could ignite a major revival of unionization and working class power. Here is a short history of recent union history and a brief description of the act. Uh, Picture this, an economy roaring along, new consumer technology is wildly popular among tens of millions of Americans. The wealthy get wealthier and unions are weak. Then disaster strikes. The economy goes into freefall while the government flails about in response. What was received economic wisdom 10 years earlier becomes stale and out of date. Sound familiar? This is a description of 1931, 90 years ago. And we find ourselves in a similar situation today. The question today is, can we as a nation find our way out of the current gilded age of great wealth among the few and great poverty among half of the working class? Of course, the Great Depression was in full swing by 1931 and the policies of President Herbert 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 Hoover did little to bring relief to suffering Americans. That helped pave the way for Franklin Roosevelt to be elected in 1932. But Roosevelt did not pull the US out of depression all by himself. Throughout the 1930s, workers organized into unions at an unprecedented scale. These newly organized workers not only helped defend Roosevelt's new deal, they also pushed Roosevelt to take stronger actions. It was the rise of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, part of the AFL-CIO, that led the way in that union upsurge. Organizing by workplace rather than by job description, the CIO became famous for the occupation of the General Motors plants in Flint, Michigan, among others. Their organizing tactics and strategy Strategies became gold standard in organizing success. The CIO organizing methods built active solidarity among diverse union members who confidently used strikes to alter the fundamental power between workers and their employers. The National Labor Relations Act, also known as the Wagner Act, comprehensively laid out the ground rules for this struggle between labor and capital. And for the first time, it was official U.S. policy to encourage and protect collective bargaining and to use grievance and arbitration to resolve ordinary worker-employer disputes. This meant that the government must protect workers' rights to organize into unions, to redress the imbalance of power between workers and employers. For, For there can be no collective bargaining if workers had no power, as is the case when they are not organized or not well organized. As the U.S. entered the Second World War, its industrial might became second to none. U.S. Union members, unions grew in membership and in power. While there was a government-imposed truce during the war, the struggle picked up steam after it ended. Of course, the wealthy and corporate interests were not entirely subdued. After the war, while Democrat Harry Truman was re-elected president, the Congress became majority Republican. And those Republicans were deeply alarmed at the growing power of workers. One of their main weapons to reduce the power of workers was the 1947 passage of a bill known as the Taft-Hartley Act. This act amended the Wagner Act in many ways. First, it allowed state legislatures to pass a free rider act known as the so-called right to work which we're pretty familiar with here in Montana. Then it restricted unions to strike and picket only the specific employer in the dispute forbidding what is known as secondary boycotts and strikes. Next, it allowed employers to fire most strikers making the strike a rarely used tool Next, it put various restrictions and conditions upon unions that did not apply to employers. Lastly, the Taft-Hartley Act demanded the removal of all communists from leadership or staff positions. This last provision was included in the act because the union's most effective organizers, the ones who built the CIO and the union movement we have today, were mostly communists. While this provision in the act was found unconstitutional in 1962, it had already done its damage as most unions shed their most effective organizers. This became the first of many shameful actions in what became known as the McCarthy era, where communists and many others were hounded out of their jobs or worse, because of the fear of communism. With the leftist organizers out of the way, unions and employers entered in a so-called golden age, where the struggles of workers were mostly kept to battling their employers. And employers, by and large, did not fight unions very strenuously. But this was not to last, when President Ronald Reagan, the first president to have also been a union president, the Screen Actors Guild, fired the striking air traffic controllers, it marked the end of the truce between labor and employers. Having shed their most effective organizers a generation earlier, and not maintaining the organizing culture within their organizations, the labor movement was quickly on its heels. And as union membership has dropped from relentless attacks on the private sector unions, and even attacks on teachers and others in the public sector, Most unions' ability to fight back, much less expand, was severely
0: restricted. Mark. Today we have the PRO Act, which undoes most of the hobbles placed on unions under Taft Hartley and other legislation and policy. For example, the PRO Act eliminates so called right to work laws passed in many states. It also forbids employers from firing strikers in most cases. It also allows for solidarity boycotts and secondary strikes, and makes intermittent strikes, slowdown strikes, and partial strikes protected concerted activity. And it repeals the ban on hot cargo agreements that helped make the Teamsters Union powerful before 1959. Many of the strongest weapons used by employers to destroy unions will all be illegal under the PRO Act. Weapons such as worker captive audience meetings, like we are seeing Amazon is employing against warehouse workers organizing in Bessemer, Alabama. And uh, would, uh, the PRO Act would forbid lockouts, uh, such as we saw done against the talc workers in Three Forks, Montana. And it would ban employers from unilaterally imposing their conditions upon workers if they reach impasse with the union in collective bargaining. The PRO Act would also formalize into law rapid and timely elections for union recognition, thereby forbidding months and months of delay, which give the employer time to mount an anti-union campaign to intimidate their workers into abandoning the union organizing drive. And if the employer violates the law during a union election that likely affected the outcome, the National Labor Relations Board, the government agency that oversees labor law, Can use signed union cards, which were usually signed before the employer knows of the drive, as the method to determine if a majority of workers want a union. The PRO Act also brings in arbitration to resolve first contract disputes with newly recognized unions. To break newly formed unions, employers commonly drag out first contract bargaining for a year, at which time the union vote expires and the union has to start all over again. The PRO Act expands the definition of employee, including gig and precarious workers who work for Uber and Lyft, for example. It restricts the definition of supervisor, who for obvious reasons cannot belong to a union, uh, to those who are really are part of the management. This would allow nurses to more freely organize, for example. And the PRO Act defines employers to include corporations who dictate to franchises how they are to manage their workers, such as McDonald's. When employers violate the law now, the only remedy offered workers is back pay minus what they have earned or should have earned with no fines or any other punishment to the employer. The PRO Act would provide for hefty and meaningful fines, worker back pay without deductions, payment of other damages to the worker and the ability of the government to impose stiff punitive damages against the employer. The PRO Act would put actual teeth into labor law for the first time, and it will do many other similar things. The PRO Act would transform the legal landscape for workers to something like it was for workers in the union heyday of the 1930s and 1940s. We hope um, that's a lot of information to take in, uh, but we hope to introduce these ideas to you and introduce you to the PRO Act and hope this forum will inform you and inspire you to support the PRO Act. Now, uh, during this meeting, we will hear from three workers who will tell their stories about trying to organize workers under the current law. First up is Ty Wheeler. Ty was a snow coach guide working for Delaware North and Yellowstone National Park. Welcome to our panel, Ty.
7: Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'll give you a quick little bit of background. I've got about 10 minutes on just kind of what happened and what the PRO Act would mean for us in our struggle. So I've been guiding the world for years, guiding for a small family company in Yellowstone. By the name of Alpine Guides. The contract was effectively put out by the name of Delaware North. Delaware North, if you're not familiar, it's the company that trademarked the naming rights to Yellowstone National Park and also to uh, the Awani tribe. So, actually, trademarked a tribal name. Uh, We, the American taxpayer, paid millions of dollars back to that company so that they could then come to Yellowstone and buy up all the family run around Yellowstone, including the contract that I was running under. So what ended up happening was I really kind of grew up in an anti-union family. I didn't even know what the NLRB was before this. I didn't even know that there were protected rights. And I didn't even know that when I work in the summer, I'm actually protected by a union. until we realize how bad things can really get. So Delaware North has come in. They've bought up uh, properties all around Yellowstone, including housing for employees. So employees come seasonally, and this is a big common factor in Montana with seasonal employees, and they'll stay in the company housing. Those They then pay rent up to four people per room. And I want you to think about this as COVID starts to unravel. Un- role here. So as the season starts, we realize that the entire architecture of the guiding ecosystem is changed. They own now about 75% of the seats that are entering the park on any given day. So that's your access to Yellowstone. Um, Our wages have dropped from the company we're working for to $12 an hour. And instead of being guaranteed five trips, we're for working one two days per week, so if you do the math, you're paying almost all the money you make back to Delaware North to live in a room with three other people. So the culture, and for them, it makes sense because then they can hire as many guides as they want or other uh, because they're paying. so. Think we're ending December. That this is last uh, of 2018. 2020 hits January we start hearing from our what coronavirus is Uh, you know they're wearing masks they're concerned Um, and we're just some food bank for me I'm a veteran Uh, there was another veteran that ended up in the line at the food bank so things have gotten quite dire and if you've been to West Yellowstone you know that it's remote Um, so Two guides that had come on and worked with us came from Denali, and they said, This is a, make a decent wage. They have health care, they have sick pay. Um, it may be helpful if Ty turns off his. What is that? Um, sorry. Can everybody hear me okay?
4: Yeah, we can hear you. You're breaking up just a little bit.
7: Ah, uh, remote Montana. Great. Um, am I all in? Do you, would that make sense if I called in? Or? Uh, I'd say forge ahead. Um, I, oh, think, okay. I think we can work with it. Sorry, Spencer. Um, so anyway, we ended up getting what's called We sent to the guides so that they could review. After we talked about how bad things were, um, then five got in and fired, or four of us rather. I picketed with uh, Sophie on Monday after we were fired, uh, or those guys were fired, and just said I talked to our union representative, and said, yeah, I said yeah. I picketed. I was fired by the company. About 15 minutes out, they effectively charged the following week, including an NPS ranger so, who was working for the company. So we ended up knowing our rights, uh, having the um, union representative telling us to call the NLRB. We called the NLRB. We told them the story. They blew out. Within three weeks, we had 11 charges found with merit against the company. It included unlawful discharge. They actually called the police on us. We had a Forest Service ranger tell us that Montana was a right to work state, just go home. They told us we could not picket on the sidewalks in West Yellowstone. And these are officers who are members of a union. Sorry, it looks like the connection's not great. Um, so long story short is we finish the charges with merit. We end up in a precarious situation where it's very clear that they were in violation. We ended up settling with Delaware North, but they only had to be guaranteed back pay, which is a guide with the record that they had was less than a $1,000 per person. Um, we ended up, let's see. Yeah, and I'll show some uh, speed bounce So we have some photos of this. We ended up uh, having to settle with Delaware North because of the current ecosystem. This was last year. Um, and so we had a lot of, um, I'll try turning off the video and see if that'll help with our data here. Um, so we ended up having the charges uh, go settled and then we ended up having new charges this following year for discrimination. Um, so we're in the process of fi- or going through the merit process and then also um, any appeals that we have to do Regarding those charges, so it's been a, a learning process, um, and and I really want to thank Mark. I really want to thank everyone that's been involved with this, so that uh, we could learn and actually use this as a precedent. I want to just touch on a few things with the Pro Act. Uh, the punitive damages could only go after back pay, and we're basically laid off. Three of them had to move out of housing. In a nice weather that the company had over them, so they couldn't and join us, so I want to thank Spencer for coming out and, and picketing with us and representing a couple of them and actually back from Utah and the other places that they'd gone to uh, and Sheridan to actually join in the fight but it's very difficult for them. They paying less than I mean they had to pay fees. They hired the best attorney firm in the country at fighting labor union law. So besides that, we got a very minuscule amount that was hardly meaningful, but it allowed us to create verbiage to allow for others to go
4: forward.
7: They had to post a uh, unification. The NLRB makes you post. A whole list of fifteen things that they won't do for future employees at all of the vacation tours to top. They own half of West Yellowstone, so I won't go through the. But really ruined effort. people there. It, it's fragile. It's time sensitive, and they ended up throwing a what's called a a morale after they look at the culture and you look at the onus that is on the employees to create a union, uh, it really begs the question of why do we have such a soft ecosystem where for Delaware North, who's making $92,000 a day on a good day on guided trips alone and they're only paying about $4,200 to the guy. The are phenomenal. For them, the cost of Blatantly violating labor law is easily a cost of business. So, moving forward with the PRO Act, we need meaningful fines. Uh, As we're moving forward, we need to look at uh, contractors that have contracts to operate in our national parks to be held at a higher standard. And if they violate those, we need to be able to take their contracts and replace them with companies that. Have a good record of taking care of their employees, don't then end up on the pocket of the state because every season all these employees that come out for the opportunity of time that fired have to go and settle or file for unemployment, and the state has to then bear the cost of taking care of the workers while they're making an absolute fortune. So. As far as the PRO Act goes, it needs to be done. I've worked all over the world. I've worked in 12 countries. I've seen doctors and nurses protest in France. I've sighted around piles of manure to reach Mont Saint-Michel with my guests, because that's how unity works. You have to fight back um, in order to get just a basic question over sick pay, health care, and for us, coronavirus was coming out they found coronavirus in the septic in West before they ever tested a single person. And we were, so anyways, that's, that's our story. Um, And uh, Mark, I'll send it back to you much appreciated for your education that you've given us to continue this fight. It's been a long one.
0: We'll continue it too. You're listening to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. And you are listening to it in the Missoula Valley on KFGM 105.5 FM, Missoula Community Radio. Or you are hearing it streaming on Saturdays from noon to 2 on 105.5kfgm.org. And uh, you may be listening to it on podcast now available on anchor.fm and on Spotify and other uh, podcast apps that you might have. Um, And you can search for it under Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. Zeth,
2: Yes. No, Ty, thank you so much for telling us that story about seasonal workers. Um, As someone who came to Bozeman as a seasonal worker at Big Sky, um, the courage that it takes to stand up whenever these, you know, um, kind of, uh, touristic, uh, uh, companies that like literally just have like every single part of your life, like every single schedule, um, hour you're living, um, able to hold over you. Um, that takes a lot of gusto and I guess gumption. And so thank you to Ty and also, Um, If Delaware North is the one who is screwing up uh, Ty's connection, um, maybe we can get that in the PRO Act somewhere too. Um, With that being said, this story that he just told, with the PRO Act was passed, we want to connect it. um, The illegally fired snow coach workers would not have money deducted from their back pay um, award, as Ty was talking about. Delaware North would have faced stiff fines for their outrageous behavior and the workers could have sued Delaware North for damages, and the NLRB could have posed punitive, punitive damages um, on the corporation. It's a little bit different from our current labor law, and would make employers think twice about messing with workers. Now, I would like to introduce our next guest, Miles McCarville. Miles is an iron is in in the Iron Workers Local 14 union um, as an organizer, and he's a also, the president of the Montana Building and Construction Trades Council. Welcome to
10: our forum, Miles. Thank you, Zep. Um, I, I guess I'll give you a, a brief background on myself and uh, kind of explain some stuff. Um, my name's Miles McCarville. I'm with the Ironworkers Union, like you just said, and, and the president of the Montana State Building and Construction Trades Council. Um, and and Mark Anderlich reached out to me and asked that I talk to you guys about some campaigns that we've been involved or with, uh, um, and and kind of some of the things that that employers are capable of doing to to shut down unions and and what the what some of the difficulties are like captive audience meetings and things like that. Um, but first, I want to talk about, you know, my history. I, I guess in, in in 1996, I went to uh, welding school and, and got a degree. And then I worked uh, non-union in, in the metal fabrication and, and art industry for about eight years. And, um, you know, I, I, I worked usually two jobs at a time and did whatever I could to to get by, but um, you know I was always living check to check, and I, I, I honestly I still am. But uh, <clears throat> really, what what got me into a union and it was was my brother got leukemia when I when I was 28 and he was 30 years old, and it, it just made me realize, you know, like we're all cornered, and without uh, you know if one thing goes wrong then you can lose everything almost instantly. And, and I think really, you know, d- during the coronavirus pandemic, we're, we're really starting to see, um, you know, just basic things like the average American can't handle a, a $400 unexpected expense or, you know, that's going to cause chaos in their world. So um, <clears throat> the, from, from my experience, you um, organizing a union is, is just kind of chaos it it, it, it it's like uh, I don't know if you guys have ever read the Hitchhiker's Guide to the galaxy but it's like the infinite improbability drive <laughs> of, you know like as, as soon as you think you've got something figured out you you wake up and you're you're sitting in the middle of a soccer field on a red velvet couch and your underwear three feet to the side air or something. Um, you just don't know what to expect. And, and, um, you know, I've been on some of these campaigns that have been, uh, successful and, and, and some that, that haven't been, um, the, the most recent one that we were involved with, uh, was, um, in, in a metal fabrication shop and, um, you know, these things I've, I've been an organizer for seven years and, and, you know, when you first start, you, you go out and you're trying to, you know, get on site and talk to different workers and, and see if there are any issues. But, but really the, the biggest campaigns that I've been involved with um, really fell from the sky and, and uh, people reached out to us and, and just, you know, we're so fed up and so cornered that. They just couldn't take it anymore, and, and you know they 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 called us um, because they, they just didn't know what else to do. Um, <clears throat> uh, so anyway, I, sorry, I just read one of my chat comments: <laughs> "Hitchhiking, it's fear and loathing on the campaign trail." Um, but the, the 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 last group that, that reached out to us. Um, there, there was a, a outbreak, or, or not, not an outbreak, but but a worker went to work in the the shop, and they had coronavirus, and they told the employer, and then left, and the employer didn't let the the anyone in the, the workplace know. And they just kind of downplayed it, and then people found out about it, and that they were exposed and all that, and 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 were upset, and that's why they reached out to us. And um, it's it it was a really interesting campaign because it you know there there was some changes that happened under the Trump administration um, through the NLRB and they happen literally in the middle of a campaign. And, um, you know, sometimes there's kind of different ways that, that an employer can react to a union campaign. And, you know, usually people are just unaware of the law. And they uh, employers often think that they can just kind of get away with anything. And if you don't like what they're dishing out, they'll they'll just fire your ass and that's it. And uh, this and and this this particular company, um, I don't know if they had, had had organizing attempts before or what, but in any case, right off the bat, they hired a, a law firm um, to to help combat uh, the campaign, and really, they were quite good, and and also you got to keep in mind, you know, it was during a pandemic, so nobody really knew what to do. Um, this was, you know, and, uh, we, we, I think we got called probably in May. Um, so we had about a month and a half to work with all these workers and, and, you know, the, we, we, by the time we, we filed, uh, I mean, we, we had a really solid comp- campaign. We thought it was going to be a slam dunk. And, you know, was, people were fired up. We, we had been having meetings for months and, you know, lots of people were showing up and there was really uh, active uh, workforce there. But um, then we filed a campaign and... The laws started changing as well as we went through the process. So they they brought in all these uh, these union buster attorneys, and and you know just kind of started with with kind of a legal threat, um, because basically like like a union and the employer were both bound by the same rules in the in the current. Uh, labor relations act so they can they can spin things to make it look like oh well you know unions can't threaten you unions can't um you know coerce you they can't they can't uh do all these things that that actually you know the the law was intended to to be towards the employer but you know, they're, they're right. Same things. We, we can't do the same things. We can't go around beating people up and breaking legs uh, to get them to sign contracts. And, um, you know, so th- this particular campaign, there was, there was uh, uh, around 130 employees. And uh, <clears throat> they, uh, in the offset, um, when you have inertia, you know, like I said, we thought it was a slam dunk. As things started to unravel and and the new labor laws began to unfold, we started running into all these things. You know, I mean, these are these are really emotional um, and and intimate things. I mean, someone's livelihood. People are are scared to death. And you know, in the in the secret part of it, before the company knew. What was happening? They were really getting empowered because we were telling them what their rights were, and and you know that that we were going to be there to help uh, protect them. But once once the employer found out about it and hired these attorneys to come in, uh, the intimidation was instantly there, and the company just said, "Look, we can we can do this without." you guys we don't need you we've got multiple shops around the country this isn't the only one you know we can we can shut the doors the most you can do is is go on strike and do you guys understand how much that's going to cost you Um, do you understand what uh, the top level executives of unions earn in a year and uh, all, all the different tactics that, that they did. And it, it was, you know, I, I was actually impressed because like I said, I've, I've, done this a couple of times with different companies and usually they just start firing people and breaking every, uh, labor law there is. And that's easier to respond to, um, you know, because then you just start filing unfair labor practice, uh, complaints with the NORB and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's actually easier. But when, when, when someone hires an attorney, like, uh, uh, Ty had spoke about the, the tables can kind of quickly, I guess, to be, be manipulated. Um, you know, and, and some of the things like, uh, you know, they, they, they start giving, uh, the the employees uh, these captive audience meetings and they're putting up on on a, a a board in front of everybody that you know we like I said we we don't need you we can shut down the shop we can bring in uh, uh, people to replace you 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 know your your only hope is to go on strike and you can't collect unemployment you're gonna this is they they told them how much. Uh, the COBRA payments would be for them to keep insurance for their families. Um, They, they talked about how much, uh, if they just invested their union dues, you know, the, the $40 a month for, for 25 years that they'd end up with $45,000 at at the end of it. Um, It just kind of went on and on and, and some of the stuff that we did is we pointed out like, yeah, you know, the owner of this company just bought a $9.4 million home in Florida and, and their retaliation was, you know, to show all our general officers and what they make and what the president of the iron workers union makes and, and, and any number bigger than, you know, $50,000 to the average, uh, American workers sounds huge. If somebody tells you, Oh, this person makes $200,000 a year. It, I mean, you th- we're thinking millionaires, you know, we're not thinking about like uh, Jeff Bezos and, and, and some of the different uh, uh, people that just, you know, have are, you know, kind of infinite amounts of money. So, so when somebody says, Oh, this guy's making 200,000 or $300,000 a year to run a, uh, uh, 140,000 member organization, it sounds like a, a big thing, but, but here they are buying, you know, uh, $9 million homes. <clears throat> and of course they always come in with, you know, like with these, like how they picked themselves up, uh, by the bootstraps and started this business with nothing and, and how, you know, the, quarterly profits of this year didn't look very good and you know we were almost thinking about shutting this shop down in the first place and then you know but we've got this commitment to our employees um just uh, it, it's non-stop and and you know i i literally I, there there was about uh 40 different pages here's here's a, a printout of all the this is all the different letters and 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 things that that the uh, the company set out to employees and and you know like even mark and i were talking about this this stuff and and you know i didn't really have time to put together a a powerpoint or anything and and also just this this stuff came to us grassroots i mean this is um, these these are you know, pamphlets that, that, that were handed out in these captive audience meetings, and then our employers or the employees in the shop were, you know, kind of sneaking their phone out and taking pictures of them or, you know, trying to not catch attention because they could be fired. Um, And uh, it, it, it was just, you know, so, so a lot of this stuff, they're just like pictures that were taken and 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 sent to us to, to kind of give us uh, an idea of what the employer was was doing. Um, and ultimately in, in this campaign, because of the extensions, like uh, uh, really the the biggest hardship is just just to give you the the end result, this campaign failed. Um, the the final vote was uh, sixty seven to thirty seven, and there was a uh, uh, hundred and thirty one employees, so some of them didn't vote. Um, but uh, the the interesting thing about it to to me in this particular campaign was some of the rule changes and how how quickly it affected us. Um, you know, one of the things it used to be like when you when you file a, a petition, there's they give they give there was seven days for you to resolve things on um, who is going to be in a, a a collective bargaining unit, who who is allowed to vote. So uh, a, a tactic by employers is they, they want to bring in all the people that that. Will vote against the union so they want you know they try to contest whether they're who who their management is or or if the the you know the maintenance man is an employee and that that can drag things out and it used to be like i said it would take seven days to 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 that was the timeline and they changed it to uh 14 days And they also changed it to 14 business days. So in reality, then it was Monday through Friday. And and it went from from seven days total to to almost three weeks to to get any kind of uh, uh, final answers on this. So it it was a a 30-day process. And they shortened it down to... Or, or it, it originally it was supposed to be a thirty-day process, and they extended it out to be. Um, what I think we started in in, uh, we we filed in the June sixteenth, and it continued into uh, August eighth was the day that they sent out the ballots, and and the uh, votes were tallied. I think on the twenty third the results were met on the 26th. So these timelines and all, all the, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of nuances to these things, but the longer you, we, you want to get in there and get it done fast because the longer they have to, uh, intimidate the workers and tell them that they're going to lose their jobs and that, that it's hopeless, the, the better their chances are. So anyway, um, that, that was kind of my 10 minutes and I'll, uh, let the next person speak. Great.
3: Thank you so much, Miles. Those were amazing stories. Um, the ones that didn't end the way we would hope, obviously, are good to still learn about. I think they really show why we need the PRO Act. I mean, no matter who you are, what race you are, what class you are, what whether you're in Bozeman or Billings, like we all in Montana know that we want to feel safe. And it's really clear that without something like the PRO Act, you just can't feel safe organizing and can't feel safe in your work. Um, And that's because, I mean, we saw in the chat the people in power are working together um, to keep us down. And so we have more people and we need to work together to um, make sure our rights Rights are followed, so all those things you mentioned—the captain, audience meetings, the long drawn-out union recognition elections, and the unrestricted use of union busting law firms—will be illegal if the pro act is passed. So I'm super excited to introduce Tammy Kim, our next speaker. Um, she actually was a workers' rights lawyer, so the good kind of lawyer. Um, and is now a freelance writer, unionist, and um, last fall she taught labor journalism and advised the student newspaper the Kaiman at the University of Montana so thank you so much for being here Tammy
6: Thanks so much Lucy and thank you so much to DSA and um to Sunrise for inviting me and to Zeth and Mark and Spencer in particular for the invitation and Karen putting this event together. I'm really excited to be with you guys and I really miss Montana so I'm picturing the skies you're under right now. Um, I, I want to say that I really empathize with what Ty and Miles just presented. Um, before I was a freelancer I was um, a W 2 worker and I organized unions in several of my workplaces with my coworkers. And I have sat through those captive audience meetings and seen union busting. And it's hard to overstate the impact of the PRO Act. Um, in one of my workplaces, we were going to go with an NLRB election until some friends were like, whatever you do, don't engage the NLRB because it was so ineffective for workers. So, you know, we, we know what the changes need to be. Um, I'm going to talk tonight about the freelancer part of the PRO Act, which is really a kind of tiny sliver of the Act, but needs attention because freelancers who oppose the PRO Act have just been so vocal about it, so uh, we need to understand why they are being so vocal against the PRO Act and you know, what can be done. Um, so, I thought tonight I would talk a little bit about the history of the freelancer category under employment and labor law um, and my experience as a freelancer um, and efforts that we've made to try to organize, but what the limits of that are under current law. Um, and Spencer's going to help with my slides. So, slide, please. Last April, when the pandemic lockdown had started to gut everything but office work, I reported on what Uber and Lyft drivers around the country were doing to survive. Don, a 66-year-old full-time Uber driver in Seattle, described how his work had evaporated within the span of a few days. People think gig work is so cool because of the flexibility, and that flexibility is nice, he told me. But all of a sudden, you don't work for two weeks, and you have no benefits. The downsides become very apparent. Historically, workers like Don, who are classified as 1099 independent contractors, not W-2 employees, and make up about 4 to 15% of the U.S. workforce, have not been eligible for unemployment or other job-based benefits. But last March, the federal government created PUA, Pandemic Unemployment Assistance, under the CARES Act to cover non-employees. The PUA promised to give jobless freelancers and independent contractors a portion of their weekly earnings, plus a temporary bonus of $600 a week. Slide, please. Between March and April of last year, when Don put in his application, more than 30 million Americans, one in five workers, filed initial claims for unemployment relief. It wasn't just drivers like Don that needed this pay. Other kinds of freelancers who'd lost work, including journalists like me, found themselves eligible for the first time By federal fiat, spurred by the crisis of the pandemic, the government was forced to recognize freelance and independent labor as legitimate and worthy of compensation. Slide, please. It was in the 1930s that the New Deal legislated most of the codes that still govern work. These laws and policies drew a line between what the government should do for its people, the welfare state, and what employers should do for their workers. More than in other comparable nations, where the social safety net is available based on citizenship or residency, and not just for the poor, people in the U.S. rely heavily on their jobs for basic benefits, like health care and retirement. In addition to the line drawn between workplace and state, the New Deal laws drew a line between employees and non-employees. W-2 employees have the right to guarantee minimum wage and overtime, protection from discrimination based on race, class, gender, religion, and age. They have the right to workers' comp if they get hurt or sick on the job. And crucially, as we're discussing tonight, they have the right to speak out about what's going on at work and to organize into unions under the NLRA. The government excluded some types of employees, domestic workers, and farm workers for reasons of race and class and immigration status from many of these laws, and these divisions persist. But people who receive a 1099 or a stack of 1099s at the end of the year continue to be excluded from all of these laws. Non-employees have always been a motley crew spanning petite bourgeois small business owners to low wage day laborers. The theoretical bargain embedded in this labor freedom and flexibility in exchange for stability has worked well for self-employed business people who aspire to be the next Ford or Bezos. But those who sell their labor on a daily basis, from bricklayers and electricians, to musicians and actors, to cleaners and taxi drivers, have lived with much less security. Slide, please. Bosses realized that if they could get away with classifying workers, not as bona fide employees, but as contractors, that they could hire and rehire, what we now call a permalancer. They could reduce their costs and liability. In entertainment and construction, unions eventually created systems to ensure that these temporary workers could still get categorized as employees. But in many other industries, misclassification as freelancers has become an essential tool of business. This is what Uber and its imitators in the so-called gig economy have inherited. A decade ago in Uber's early days, it marketed itself as offering vehicle owners something more like a friendly carpool shift than a job. Remember the sharing economy? Slide, please. In 2019, California passed Assembly Bill 5, which implemented the ruling of a case called Dynamex Operations versus Superior Court of LA. That case held that Dynamex, a delivery company that offered same day courier services, had unlawfully misclassified workers who did pickups and deliveries as independent contractors. This forced the workers to pay for their own equipment, insurance, and uniforms. The decision that declared that they were in fact employees was a huge one because the court relied on a broad, powerful legal test for who should or should not be an employee. That test is called the ABC test because it has three parts, which I won't go into great detail, um, but this has become the crux of why freelancers are opposing the PRO Act. Slide, please. When the ABC test became law in California through AB5, it caused a sensation misclassified construction workers and Uber and Lyft drivers. They'd sued for years to try to get recognized as employees. And now under the new law, which affected many different employment laws, which is therefore different than the PRO Act, they were on track to be paid minimum wages in overtime to get workers' comp, to be protected under under wage and hour and uh, discrimination laws. And California would finally be able to collect millions, untold millions of dollars in lost tax revenues the taxes that employers evade by treating workers as freelancers. But some independent contractors in California, from truckers to bloggers and corporate consultants, were furious about the change in the law. Because the ABC test was so broad and brought so many people under employee status, they feared that the companies who'd hired them to do work would cancel their contracts. Sure enough, there were some stories of -of out-of-state publishers and other business who did drop contractors located in California. Slide, please. But instead of directing their anger toward these employers, some freelancers attacked the legislators and advocates who were trying to solve the problem of misclassification. Because many of these freelancers are writers and content creators, their collective voice was louder than it should have been, especially on social media. These people also partnered with libertarian and pro-business legal groups to sue the state of California to seek exemption from the ABC employment test. As a result, in September 2020, Assembly Bill 5 was amended with additional exemptions from the ABC test for cartoonists, translators, landscape architects, sports coaches, writers, among others. Slide, please. Now, while these workers were fighting Assembly Bill 5 piecemeal, Uber, Lyft, Instacart, DoorDash, and Postmates spent $250 million, the most in the history of California ballots, to launch a costly campaign to prevent the new law from applying to any app-based worker. In November, 2020, they won. The public voted that gig economy workers should remain permanently categorized as independent contractors, a huge loss for many gig workers. Maybe it was foreseeable that upwardly mobile white collar freelancers would feel no common cause with these gig workers. But I had naively assumed that because of the death and devastation of the pandemic and the welfare state expansions that we saw under the CARES Act, which again included the extension of of unemployment benefits to people like me, there would be some unity among this working class within the independent category. Slide, please. To To some extent, there is unity. I have watched with, with wonder and maybe some, some fear <laughs> as President Biden has given the most pro-union speech in US history and has pushed for infrastructure plans, job plans that prioritize home health care and green transit. One of his priorities is of course what we're talking about tonight, the PRO Act, which could truly revolutionize the way all of us, including freelancers work. Slide please. The version of the PRO Act passed in the house has a special provision for freelancers like me By adopting the ABC test to determine who counts as an employee for purposes of the right to organize, it would change the NLRA to apply to gig workers, independent truckers, freelance journalists, and consultants for the first time. Again, as it stands now, we 1099 workers do not have any protected right to organize. In fact, when we do try to coordinate around pay or working conditions, we risk being accused of price fixing and conspiracy. If the PRO Act were to pass, 1099 drivers could form unions to pressure Uber and Lyft for health and safety protections. Online booksellers could organize for protection against arbitrary removal from the Amazon marketplace. And independent non-salaried writers like me, we could, we could collectively bargain for the first time with magazines and newspapers. And yet, because the PRO Act incorporates the ABC test to expand, it has provoked a replay of the anger over AB5 in California. Slide, please. A few months ago, I began to see white-collar freelancers agitating against the PRO Act on Twitter. According to their posts, the PRO Act would kill the freedom we have in our jobs, turning us into 9-to-5 robots. I interviewed several of these pro- these anti-PRO Act freelancers for a reported opinion essay recently published in the New York Times. One of my sources was a woman I'll call N, a proud and eloquent writer for hire. N told me that she earns more than $100,000 a year and that over more than two decades, she has managed to raise a family and survive illnesses on that income. We aren't workers, we are business owners, N told me. Although she understands that the PRO Act would only affect the right to organize, she fears that the ABC test will spread to federal wage and hour laws and everything else governing workers. Quote, it will create a new standard where we'll be misclassified as employees, she said. This turns the idea of misclassification on its head. It baffles and troubles me that so many white collar workers and fellow freelance journalists, given all that we know about our fragile industry, should be so hostile toward worker organizing. It also baffles me that they are so blind to what's really going on in our global economy. Slide, please. When I worked as a legal services lawyer, I represented many low wage workers who were classified as contractors, but were in reality employees. I remember an immigrant salon worker who went into thousands of dollars of debt because she had no employer provided health insurance. I remember some commercial cleaners whose bosses tried to deny them workers comp for lung disease. And I remember nannies who never qualified for unemployment. Their misclassification without the strength of the ABC test was really difficult to prove. As a journalist, having interviewed dozens of Uber and Lyft drivers and old school taxi drivers before them, I've seen how little freedom and independence these freelance workers actually enjoy. It's really the corporations who determine the conditions of their work day to day and who could unplug them as swiftly as they allow them to log on. Slide please. I have never thought that the situation of low-wage gig workers has nothing to do with me nor am I alone in this. My fellow members in the Freelance Solidarity Project, an organizing effort for freelancers in journalism because again we can't have an official union which is housed under the National Writers Union of the United Auto Workers We nearly unanimously support the PRO Act, including the ABC test. I'm encouraged by the high levels of support for unions and worker organizing among young people. Those who entered the workforce after the 2008 mortgage scam and amid the rise of our monopolistic tech economy, amid this climate change, this catastrophe that we're all facing together, the people who must now navigate a late pandemic or post-pandemic world. These workers have no illusions about the state of the economy. Next slide, please. I believe that all of us must agitate for more rights on the job while simultaneously pushing for universal health care, sick and family leave, and a minimum income detached from work so that the divide between employee and freelancer becomes more of a slope than a cliff. But even if we had abundant public goods, there will still be companies and individuals, bosses and workers. So all of us, gig workers and white collar freelancers, we will still have to pick a side. So my question for freelancers out there is, do we want to stand with Amazon and Uber executives or with working people and families? We have to ask who has the power in this economy and we have to fight to make sure that we take that power for ourselves. Thanks so much.
11: Thank you so much. Um, we are going to move into a and A um, I linked Tammy's opinion piece in, um, in the chat, just so everyone can um, read that. It's really informative. And I know that I, and, and I've spoken with DSA members about how thankful we are for your work in documenting and helping us remember these stories of freelancers and workers in our country. Um, it's like the evidence that we need um, for why we need the PRO Act right now, um, and I want to take a moment to, um, answer some questions. I think we have less time than we anticipated for our Q&A, um, but Spencer, I will hand it over to you to, um, pick out a question for us to answer.
4: Sure, uh, thank you, Lila. Um, sorry, I have you spotlighted, and I'm gonna try and Undo do that, there we go. Um, So just because we only have uh, time for one question here, uh, I'm going to be picky, and I'll try and answer the other ones in uh, the chat. Um, But we'll go with uh, Ethan's question um, on uh, Miles's story. Uh, And he's asking, is a labor organizing campaign the process of workers forming a union? and I don't know, maybe if we can
10: have Miles answer that, that'd be great. Uh, yes, yes, that's, that, that would be what I was talking about, a union organizing campaign is when a group of workers reach out to a union and, and uh, well, you can even form your own union if, if you want. The laws are there to either have a already organized union or uh, create your own.
4: Great. Thank you. Um, and I'm being told we have time for a few more questions. Uh, so let's see here. Um, Daniel is asking, how likely is the bill to get through the Senate? Um, and how likely is it to get past the filibuster? Um, and I I think Mark might have some information on that.
0: Yeah, I think um, we can cover that in a little bit after the Q&A.
4: Okay, great. Uh, Then I will grab another one here. Um, So uh, Elizabeth asked, uh, what have we learned from the Amazon effort in Alabama uh, that would apply to Montana? Um, And I know Tammy had a slide about the Alabama organizing, so maybe we can have Tammy answer that.
6: I feel bad because I'm not in Montana to really <laughs> you know the conditions. I have to say that um, just looking from outside of the state, I've just was been really moved at how activists and the unions have fought back against the right to work push in the new legislature. You know, I really admire the work that all of you guys are doing in Montana. I think all of us have a ton to learn from the Bessemer campaign. Um, you know, I think one of, one of the takeaway lessons for me has been um, how important it is to build a community campaign alongside the labor campaign inside of the workplace. Um, I think they've just done a fantastic job of really doing a 360 on making clear what the stakes are for everybody, you know, in a right to work state. It's incredible, you know, and with really low wage black workers standing up and saying, we're not going to take this. Um, So to me, it's really a lesson about how to figure out who your allies are and just put everything on blast. So I wish them luck in the count
4: and so do we. (laughs) Thank you, Tammy. Um, Okay. Uh, And I guess we're, we might as well just do our other question here. So, um, clarification question from Ethan. Uh, What is a captive audience meeting, and how do they impact labor organizing? And uh, I'm going to throw that one to Miles.
10: Um, A captive audience meeting um, is, is something that an employer will put on And they have um, like in in the campaign that I was talking about, they actually they they if if you missed if if one of the employees didn't show up for work that day, they actually had makeup days for the uh, captive audience meetings, and and it's basically what they did is they they had those uh, labor uh, anti union attorneys. Put on presentations about how, you know, all, all the stuff that I showed you um, was from those captive audience meetings where they where they you know tried to make unions look bad and and tell you that that basically the employer didn't need you and that they could do without you.
4: Thank you. Um, and we'll just do one more and then. Uh... Uh, we'll wrap things up here. So um, let's see here. Uh, So we had a question from, uh, let's see, who was it? It was uh, Grady. Um, Has anyone touched on the five senators, uh, Maine's Angus King, Kristen Sinema, uh, and Mark Kelly of Arizona, Manchin, uh, Mark Warner of Virginia, um, who have not signed or voiced their support of the PRO Act in the Senate. Um, so those are the Democrats uh, that have not signed on to the PRO Act. Um, I guess anyone who has an answer to that, uh, chime in. Yeah.
0: I, can, I can answer that one. Um, so right now, as a standalone bill in the Senate, the PRO Act has the sponsorship of 45 Democratic senators, including our Senator, Tester, um, and but there are five Democrats who have not. Um, the uh, two weeks ago, uh, DSA and the Working Families Party and the um, uh, uh, Painters Union, the co- uh, Communication Workers Union, and some other groups came together and uh, generated half a million phone calls to convince uh, people in those states to call their senators. To uh, step forward and uh, adopt the um, the PRO Act, to co-sponsor the PRO Act, um, and I might just say that, um, you know, we uh, th- there's been some there's been some changes even since then. So uh, for this event, we had invited both Senator Tester and Senator Daines to this forum. Um, Senator Tester, who does support the PRO Act, as I said, apologized for not being able to attend. Senator Daines responded to say he couldn't make it either. Um, We have researched public statements by Senator Tester about the PRO Act and found none except for his co-sponsorship of the bill. Today, we received notice that Senator Tester will appear tomorrow at 2 p.m. on a Montana AFL-CIO Facebook forum to make a statement in support and to take questions from participants. Uh, We are delighted that Senator Tester will make his first public statement of support for the PRO Act tomorrow, and we encourage you to participate in that forum tomorrow, Uh, and um, if you could put the link uh, for that Facebook chat in the, uh, if you would, Spencer, um, that uh, you go to this link, and at 2 o'clock tomorrow, you can participate. We asked Senator Tester to become more of a public champion of the PRO Act than he has been so far. The PRO Act will now be a part, uh, and here's the change, okay, the PRO Act will now be a part of the giant infrastructure bill the Biden administration proposed uh, last week instead of a standalone bill. And the PRO Act in this giant bill must not be lost in the complicated legislative process that may last until the end of the summer or even longer. More than ever does Senator Tester need to stand strong with the working people of Montana. With its inclusion in the infrastructure bill, the PROAC's chances have seemed to improve. This is good uh, and and seemed to improve because it might avoid the filibuster question, right? So that goes back to that earlier question. Um, It may, it may, (laughs) there's no guarantee that it will, but at least uh, it, it has a chance. Um, and that's good, and made more so by the support of the Biden administration. Uh, also, we must ask Senator Danes. we shouldn't forget about our other uh, senator, to also support the PRO Act for the welfare of working Montanans. But, you know, uh, the PRO Act will not pass without you. The corporate elite are out to destroy this bill. They see this as a threat to their undemocratic hold over our country. They will stop at nothing to defeat the PRO Act, okay? And if you think these stories about employers trying to crush unions, uh, you ain't seen nothing yet with uh, the organized business class and corporate class working against the PRO Act. Um, But that's why you are important. And what they have in money, we have more so in people. Just remember that. But you need to do your part. Many hands make the load light, as they say. As this legislation takes many twists and turns, stick with us as we build with others the winning coalition of workers and supporters across the state. We need solidarity like never before, because by organizing our power, we can get a lot more done than even the PRO Act. Join us on May 1st, International Workers' Day, for events to organize support for this critical legislation. The Montana DSA chapters will be uh, organizing more events with others, including the Sunrise Movement, of course, uh, to build the critical mass necessary to win this. So stay in touch, and most importantly, get involved. I pass it to you, Isabel.
8: Thank you so much, Mark. Um, yes, again, we will be rallying here in Bozeman on Friday, this Friday, um, April 9th uh, at 5 p.m. starting at the library and walking to the courthouse Um, there will be another march happening in Missoula and um, if you are in neither of those places check in with your local DSA chapters um, to see if they will be doing something all this information I believe is now in the chat as well as in both of our social medias Um, and finally I just want to thank everyone for being here I It meant a lot to me to be here, to be here with you all, to learn from all three of our panelists. Um, A few things that really, really stuck with me, Um, Miles said that we are all cornered. We live in this place, in this society, where we are being cornered by um, (laughs) all of these issues. And um, Ty said in the chat that it gets so emotional when people cannot pay rent, but they cannot afford not to work. And finally, Tammy spoke about um, the worthiness, um, being worthy of comp, comp sorry, being worthy of compensation. I I want to live in a world where we are all inherently worthy of compensation. We should not have to feel unworthy of our right to live here. Um, So with that, um, again, envision this world where we all are worthy. Um, I am trying to every day ground in that it is possible. Um, Thank you all so much for being here and join us on Friday.
12: Taken untold millions that they never toil to earn, but without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn. We can break their haughty power, gain our freedom when we learn that the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever, solidarity forever. The union makes us strong in our hands is placed a power greater than their hoarded gold greater than the might of atoms magnified a thousand fold we can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old for the union makes us strong Solidarity for